Here's Seamus. Thanks, Jerry. My name is Seamus. I need to get back from this, don't I? Um, anyway, I don't want to blast the speakers out here. Um, the, uh, my name is Seamus O'Connor, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, listening to what Jerry says, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little stunned, actually. Uh, I was stunned when I walked in, and I saw, I was expecting maybe, you know, 15 or 20 people. And uh, uh, But, um, you know, anything that I say, uh, I've stolen. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's how we that's how we pass stuff on. So, whatever I say, it's stuff that has been uh, I have been helped to see, um, and I'm passing it on in the spirit that it was passed on to me. And one of the things I like about and love about our program is that there's no authoritative interpretation of anything. We're a bunch of anarchists, and we all have our own interpretation of everything. And, you know, I'm just throwing what I have picked up over the last 39 years uh, into the pot, you know, for somebody, it, hopefully it may be of some use to uh, somebody, uh, as it was for me. I'm one of these people who had a lot of trouble getting into the program. Uh, I... I came in with a closed mind. I thought I knew uh, more than I knew. And uh, uh, it was very hard to get anything in past what I thought I knew. And, and I think that's one of the things I work a lot with people in recovery uh, for the last 30 years or so. And... And I find that that's the, like the biggest bar to recovery in many cases is what we think we know about the problem. And um, uh, for those of you who haven't heard my story, I'm going to kind of qualify a bit. And for the rest of you, I hope it doesn't bore you to tears. Uh, because I know there's some people here who have heard my story. I hate to think how many times. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but anyway, I was born in Northern Ireland, uh, and I uh, was one of those kids who didn't have a clue what he wanted to do, really. Uh, the family thought it would be a good idea. I became a doctor, and I, I'm, I'm always sympathetic to people who say, with those grades, you could become a doctor. You know, the, the part that is missing in there is, yeah, but do you have the inclination to heal people? You know, is that a passion of yours? And uh, so uh, I, I went through uh, boarding school, and it was a very good good school academically, and I did okay in it. And I have some uh, classmates who did way better. That we've got two Nobel prize winners in my class in boarding school in Northern Ireland of all things. Um, so, uh, you know, so I didn't do that well. And uh, uh, my mother wanted me to have a Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> she didn't care much what it was in, just so long as, and that I would be on the cover of Time magazine. She was a, 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 an America file, I guess. And uh, 
But uh, she was a school teacher, and uh, you know, thank God for it because I got a good education as a result. But uh, I spent the summer before I was to go to university with my uncle, who was a doctor, and I made some remarks during the course of that summer, like, "How do you feel being with sick people all day?" You know, and like, and I also complained that it wasn't very exciting, that it was very routine what he did. And he said, you know, I, I think you ought to rethink your career plans. And so I, you know, it wasn't an option to stay home. So I thought, why don't I go to seminary? A lot of guys were going to seminary. And uh, so I went to a seminary. I figured seven years when you're 17, seven years just seems like an eternity. Something will develop, you know. Well, nothing did, actually, and I just kept going back every summer at the end of the summer. And, and then one summer came and they ordained me. <laughs> and, and I know that sounds very trite, but, you know, I, I was the kind of person who just went along, you know. And I, I took my exams and I showed up for chapel, and how do they know, you know? Um, but, um, so I, uh, I, in the course of the seven years I had signed up, you had to commit to a diocese uh, where you were going to serve as a priest, and I thought, I've always wanted to go to California. So I, I tried for San Francisco, and it, they weren't looking for anybody, so Sacramento was close enough. So I, I, the lucky people of Sacramento got me. And uh, so in 1960, I showed up in Sacramento to preach whatever, you know. And uh, and I think my problem as a priest was, besides not having a vocation, I didn't believe a lot. And I tended to preach the things I agreed with. And I kind of ignored the other things. So it was sort of cafeteria style. And uh, I, uh, uh, when I was about six months in Sacramento, it's a funny thing, you know, I, I, I always remember this one woman uh, who talked about this in a meeting one night. She said, you know, I woke up and I was in the aisle of a Kmart in Daly City, and I had two kids with me. And she said, the last time I was conscious, I was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I had kind of had one of those experiences, kind of like a moment of clarity. I was about six months a priest. All the novel they had worn off. You know, all the ceremonial, the dressing up, you know, all of that stuff had kind of worn off. And I'm like, this isn't really a good fit for me. <laughs> and, but, you know, I was, I was a conscientious kid in some ways. So what I did was I just worked my butt off. I was the hardest. <laughs> Many years later, my wife and I went back and we visited the pastor of the parish that uh, I was in, and it was his golden jubilee or something, and uh, he sat Diane and myself up at the top table, and he introduced me as the hardest working assistant pastor that St. Robert's Parish ever had. 
which is true, I was. I taught high school, I did all kinds of stuff, I raised more money, I had more converts. You know, to what? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> they, um, so, you know, but along with working really hard, I discovered alcohol. I had not drunk up until this. I drunk like a beer in the summer, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I discovered old granddad 100 proof, which is what the pastor drank. And he said, if you ever feel like a nightcap, well, I had never had anything work as well as about this much. It worked better than ordination, prayer, anything else. I never felt as whole as I did with this much hundred proof granddad. It was just, it was magical. It was like I was saved, you know. And, and I, I didn't forget that. I realized that I could feel this way a great deal of the time. And it started like at seven o'clock every evening, and then it started like, and I eventually got up to where it was like about three in the afternoon. I would start feeling good. And, and I didn't have hangovers, and I couldn't see any reason why not to do this. Uh, the only disadvantage really was the cost and getting rid of the empty bottles, which, which was terrible in a rectory, you know, because you, you just, the rectory is run by an old housekeeper, an old Irish woman, she's 70-something, and she, like, does your underwear, and she does the laundry, and you know, she's into everything. And you can't hide anything from her, except I had a locked steamer trunk. And I was a couple of years sober before I got rid of all the empties that were in that. It was like a body in my closet, you know, and, and it was a big guilt that I had, you know, for a couple of years sober. I'm like, oh God, there's that dead body, you know. And so, uh, but uh, when I was five years in Sacramento, the bishop called me in, and I was at this point drinking a fifth of granddad a day. This is three years after I started drinking at all. And... And I thought I was in trouble, but instead he said, we're thinking of sending somebody on for a doctorate in canon law. And we're wondering if you would agree to go. Well, it was five years out of Sacramento. <laughs> and as a friend of mine said, if it had been ballet, I would have said yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was like... Uh, uh, thank God, you know, I get to go back to Washington, D.C. for five years. And, um, and when I was there, uh, my drinking, like, you know, I would sober up for about a month before finals and stuff. And, but um, it got worse and worse emotionally. I started, um, you know, becoming, like, really depressed and anxious and fearful and, you know, uh, and... I called up this priest in Sacramento just before I came home for summer. And I told him about a friend of mine who had this drinking thing that uh, I didn't understand. And he started discussing it. And pretty soon we fi I found out that he was saying, so how does it feel when you drink like that? You know, And, and I, I realized that I had bought right into it. We were discussing my drinking. And he said... 
when you come home, let's go to an AA meeting. And uh, um, when, uh, so we agreed to meet on a Tuesday night in Sacramento. I drove across the country. And uh, he said, don't drink that day. Okay. And I met him. And uh, going into the meeting, I was like really terrified because I was, I'm sure that AA was Protestant. You know, and, and God forbid, you know, that I, you know, uh, and, and so I, I caught him, I was walking in the door and I said, I'm not joining tonight. And he looked back at me and he said, don't sign anything tonight. Okay, just listen. So, you know, I, I, I mean... But later on, then, he took me to this place. We, in those days, we called it a fidget farm, you know, where you drive out. It's called spin drives and treatment centers and stuff today, but we called it a fidget farm. And it was up in Sonoma, and I went there, and I dried out, and I spent about a month there. And actually, I got a kind of an idea of Alcoholics Anonymous there, but I still had, like, two or three relapses in me because I didn't really get the program. I, uh, I would get busy. I'd go back to school and I'd have too many research projects and stuff like this and I got too busy. I'd stop going to meetings and then I'd drink. And, and I drank for the most trivial reasons, you know. And, and so eventually when I uh, got back to Sacramento, I had my doctorate, I was promoted, I was like about the third in rank in the diocese as far as like an official and all this sort of stuff. And of course, I was now destined to be back in Sacramento forever. And I started drinking again and I attempted suicide really seriously and, and I just barely missed doing it. Um, and I, I put a tube in the back window of the car, like in the middle of the night in the, car, in the garage. And, uh, um, you know, I was drunk, I was drugged, and I passed out on the front seat, and I woke up and the car had stalled. And, yeah, and uh, I, I, it stalled early enough that all I had was like a really bad headache and groggy and hungover and... Uh, my last, that was my last night of drinking, uh, and I sat out uh, in South Sacramento on a meadow out behind the school, the Catholic school, and, uh, you know, four o'clock in the morning, and, uh, you know, listening to the frogs in February 22nd, 1971, and I called this this Sacramento recovery house and I, it was kind of a low bottom recovery house and I went there and it was like I was willing to do anything and uh, it was run by a guy who was like really scary <laughs> and he had his professional name was Walter from Philadelphia and and he had done like hard time in Quentin and then Folsom and you know and all of this sort of stuff and so if, but I was willing to do anything and so that was the beginning of my sobriety. And uh, so um, that is a kind of what, uh, you know, when, when I, somebody asked me then, you know, a couple of years later to speak at an AA meeting. And uh, I, I asked my sponsor, who was this priest that I had called. He became my sponsor. And uh, I said, so what do I talk about? And he said, 
I'm going to try not to say the F word because it's a church. Okay? So, I'm trying to think of a substitute. <laughs> Shack. <laughs> uh, if you grew up where I grew up, in the British Isles, anywhere, you used F every syllable, every other syllable. You know, so it's, it's sometimes a little constricting. Right, Barry? <laughs> you put it in everywhere, right? And uh, so, uh, but my sponsor said to me, he says, why don't you talk about how you shagged up the program? Uh, and he said, that's what you're a real expert on. All the ways you messed up the program before you finally got it. And, and that's the kind of what led to um, what, what I would talk about. And um, they, um, so I got the first step, I thought, right away. Because I got that, the craving thing. I got that thing about craving. And when some old part of some meeting said it's the first drink that does it, I went, yes, I know that. Because I would get sober for six months, seven months, 14 months, and then I would take one, and I was off again. And when somebody said it's the first drink that does it, I got that. It fired up the craving. And that's what I thought powerlessness was. And so, I thought that until one night in Sacramento, uh, we went back to the aftercare at the recovery house, or to a, an AA meeting, and we're all talking about the insanity of alcoholism, and, and we're all telling about how insane we were. And, oh, I remember being this, and I did that, and, you know, I drove over the grapevine in the winter, and I woke up in Bakersfield, and I don't remember anything about the drive, and, man, that's insane, and, you know, all this kind of... And we all had these, like, topping each other, and I had a great story. I couldn't wait to tell it uh, about how insane I was. You know, I, I thought I was out drinking, and I, I thought turning my car around on the cross the crossing of the Western Pacific tracks. That would be a good place to turn. <laughs> and if you've never tried it, don't. Because what happens is your car wheels lock into the rails. And, and I had to get a tow truck to tow me off at midnight. And, you know, the zephyr was coming through in the morning, you know, when, you know and it's like, and I just got through talking about how insane that was when the kitchen chair that Walter was sitting on flew back and hit the wall. And he grabbed it and he slammed it on the floor and he said, will somebody talk about the insanity of alcoholism? And we were stunned. What is wrong with Walter? <laughs> and he said, and would you shut up about how goofy you were when you were drunk? He said, you people don't know the difference. And it was like, we just thought Walter was having a problem. And a few days later, I went by the recovery house, and you know, I'm kind of, uh, how are you feeling today, Walter? And he looks up from his chair, and he says, 
You still don't get it, do you? Is it what? The insanity of alcoholism. Um, yeah. He said, for about three years now, we've listened to you sounding off about the goofy things you did when you were drinking. I said, so? <laughs> he said, do you have your big book in your car? Yeah. Well, bring it in. So I brought in my big book. And I had marked my big book in places. He said, so what do you think? He said, you keep saying it's the first drink that does it. He said, is that what they, is that? I said, well, yeah, that's what they always say. He said, you know, Aristotle's grandmother knew that. She knew that if her old man who was a drunk was on the wagon and then she saw him talking himself into a nuzo, he was gone again. He says, you can't possibly believe that that wasn't discovered until 1935. <laughs> that the human race did not discover that thing until 1930. He says, if you believe that, you belong to Moron's Anonymous. You know, uh, he said, and he says, well, that's what, he said, open the book, page 35. At page 35, and I'll give these numbers out because, as I always say, there's Protestants here. <laughs> and, and the reason I say this is, one of the things I love about Protestants, they bring their book to church, and the minister better not be pulling their leg. They want to know chapter and verse, and even what version he's using. None of these newfangled things, you know. So, um, and, and where the Catholics go to church and they kind of, uh, it's probably close enough. <laughs> Episcopalians are almost as bad. And not quite, but almost as bad as Catholics and that. Uh, so for the Protestants, page 35, the top of the page, says, they're talking about how, why they wrote the book. And Walter pointed this out to me, and the first time I ever read it, it says, so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. Did you not think that maybe the crux of the problem was worth underlining? You have, and then, underlined over on page 34, but you haven't underlined what it said is the crux of the problem, the mental state that precedes the first drink. So it's not the first drink. I said, well, I don't get that. And he says, well, turn to page 24. And I turned to page 24. And he says, do you notice anything on 24? And I says, oh, you mean the italics? 
He says, why do you think they put it in italics? Because it's important? He said, no. Because they couldn't afford to put it in neon. <laughs> and, 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 and page 24 talks about this mental this mental lapse that we have, and it says the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Well, why do they say, just put the plug in the jug? And he said, that's like telling an overweight person to just not eat so much. <laughs> if we could arrange that, we wouldn't need the program. So, the problem is more complicated than I thought it was. You see, I thought it was fine until I took the first drink. And then he points out, you know, the other examples, you know, the guy who has been, um, you know, lost his business and has, you know, been in asylums and all of this sort of stuff. And he goes out and, and he's been sober and he's, he's taking a sandwich and a glass of milk and he has another sandwich and another glass of milk. And then he says, it's page 36. Yeah. And you notice there's, there's italics. And it says, suddenly the thought crossed my mind, if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Well, now there's a pop psychology explanation. Pop psychology is one of my favorite things to hate. Because pop psychology gives you the impression that if you're just savvy enough and vigilant enough, you can forestall relapse. You know, and you can see the reason for relapse. And anybody who's trying to find cause and effect for an insane act, just think about it. You're trying to find a reason for an act of insanity? I mean, that is really insane. So, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, he was probably, he was resentful because it happens to mention that he had a little words with the guy that morning, you know, so he had a resentment. Well, that doesn't explain how he was in the asylum all of those times, how he drank himself out of the business. You know, it's like, okay, maybe the last one he had a little resentment, but, you know, to try to explain relapse by some facile little pop psych explanation like that. And then they do a real job on this on page 41. And see, as a psychotherapist, I, I just, I read this. This is the guy who was sober 11 months. And he failed to enlarge his spiritual condition. He thought it wasn't a big deal anymore. It was so easy staying off the alcohol. And then he talks about a relapse he had. And if you just look at page, the top of page 41, if those of you got a book, um, 
you can almost hear the psychotherapist. Um, well, maybe you hadn't been out of town since you'd been sober. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell. There was nothing new about that doctor. Maybe you weren't feeling well physically. No, physically, I felt fine. He's knocking down all of these pop psych explanations, right? Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased, and I knew my partners would be pleased. See how that paragraph ends? It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Except that there's italics on the horizon. <laughs> I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner as I crossed the threshold of the dining room. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind. It would be nice to have a cocktail with my dinner. Nothing more. 